Picture a man falling from the sky. It's nighttime, late November in the Pacific Northwest. The man is thousands of feet up, and as he plummets through the air, rain and wind surround him. Below, he can see dark woods, fields, and rivers as the ground rushes up to meet him. He's been described as a white guy, or perhaps in the language of the time in which he lived, as having olive skin. He looks early middle-aged, his dark hair cropped close, his hairline receding just a little bit. A handsome, if somewhat nondescript face with worry lines, like he's seen some things. He wears a business suit and crisp white shirt though he lost his clip-on tie and sunglasses somewhere along the way. On his feet, he's wearing loafers. Maybe the man sees city lights twinkling in the distance to the south, Vancouver, Washington, and Portland, Oregon. Maybe he sees cars zipping down Interstate 5, that long road that stretches from Canada to Mexico. Or maybe he can only concentrate on fumbling for the ripcord of the parachute that stands between him and a long fall to certain death. We don't know. We can only guess what happens next. But we can assume that at this moment, tumbling through the air, the thing he cares about most, besides making it to the ground alive, is the bag he has with him. It's tied shut with the shroud lines of another parachute, attached to his body with a handle fashioned from parachute rope. Inside the bag, $200,000 in cash. At this moment, the man doesn't know that he will soon be one of the most notorious criminals in American history. That for the rest of the century and beyond, he will be known by the name D.B. Cooper. Not his real name, not even the alias he used when he bought a ticket for the plane he planned to hijack, but a name that after this moment, on the night of November 24th, 1971, will live on in American culture right up to now, exactly 50 years later. D.B. Cooper flies through space, a lonely body spinning through the northwest night. Maybe he lives. Maybe he dies. What's certain is that after this moment, he will never be forgotten. I'm Zach Dundas, and this is a special episode for Season 2 of Death in the West, produced on the 50th anniversary of D.B. Cooper's legendary hijacking. Today's episode, The Man Who Jumped. When he got on a plane in Portland, Oregon last night, he was just another passenger. But today, after hijacking a Northwest Airlines jet, ransoming the passengers in Seattle, then making a getaway by parachute somewhere between there and Reno, Nevada, the description on one wire service, master criminal. It was indeed a bold and brazen crime. On the afternoon before Thanksgiving, 1971, 
50 years ago this week, a man calling himself Dan Cooper boarded Northwest Orient Flight 305 from Portland, Oregon to Seattle, Washington. Even in 1971, that routine flight was about as close as you could get to riding a Greyhound bus in the air. But the man who gave the name Cooper had plans that were anything but routine. Let's talk about how he looked. That would become a key part of his legend. He wore a russet-colored suit, white shirt, and a cheap black clip-on tie. Very 1971, and very in keeping with how people dressed for the most ordinary, day-to-day activities back then. In many of the police sketches that would become iconic, Cooper wears dark sunglasses. The shades give him a definite secret agent vibe. We don't know what he did that day, before he got to the airport. We don't even know how he got there. Did D.B. Cooper take a cab? Have a friend drop him off? As author and journalist Bruce Smith, whom we'll hear from later, likes to say, it's as if D.B. Cooper came from nowhere, and after his crime was completed, he returned to nowhere, like he came to life the moment he stepped up to the Northwest Orient ticket counter. Back then, Portland International Airport didn't have security as we know it today. The man going by Dan Cooper bought a one-way ticket to Seattle for $20 in cash and breezed right onto the plane, carrying an attaché case and a paper bag. No full-body scans, no awkward pat-down, no TSA. He took a seat on the Boeing 727 alongside 35 other passengers. By all accounts, he played it cool. He sat in the very back row on the starboard side of the aircraft. That's the right side for you non-seafaring types. While the plane was still on the ground, he ordered a bourbon and soda. Those were the days. The plane took off at about 3 p.m. In Portland, at this time of year, the day is already starting to fade toward darkness by then. Shortly after takeoff, Cooper handed a flight attendant a note. In printed capital letters, the note declared that this passenger had a bomb. The flight attendant sat down beside Cooper, as the note instructed her to do. The man in the suit cracked open the attaché case to reveal a set of red tubes and wires, maybe an actual bomb. He told her to write a note to the captain, demanding four parachutes, two main chutes and two reserves, and $200,000 in cash. He wanted the crew to secure these items in Seattle, at which time, he said, passengers would be released from the plane. The plane would be refueled. From there, the hijacker said he and the flight crew would head for Mexico. The plane landed at SeaTac after circling Puget Sound for a couple hours as officials on the ground worked to fulfill the hijacker's demands. There were some snags as the FBI tried to stall. But the flight crew, whose lives were at stake, pushed for Cooper's plan to go smoothly. He got his parachutes and his money, and the refueled plane took off again, with just the hijacker and crew aboard, headed south. So, we'll go deeper into this during the season, but here's some context. In the 1960s and early 70s, airplanes were being hijacked, or skyjacked, if you feel me, all the time. On average, about once a week, sometimes more than one per day. It was an era of totally lax airport security, as we've heard, also an era of political tension and worries about rising crime. 
All of that came together in the air as skyjacking became almost trendy and weirdly almost expected. It was a complex phenomenon and there's lots to talk about. As far as Cooper is concerned, an important note is that the authorities were divided on how to respond. As this time period wore on, law enforcement, with the FBI taking the lead, wanted to get more aggressive in battling skyjackers. Meanwhile, the airlines, the companies that actually owned the planes, kind of just wanted the problem to go away quietly. They often gave skyjackers whatever they asked for. But even though airline hijacking was commonplace in the time we're talking about, Cooper would not be commonplace. In fact, Northwest 305 was about to become one of the best-known flights in history. This podcast tells the stories behind famous crimes, mysteries, and notorious incidents that shaped the American West. Four of us work on this show, three journalists and a historian. We do it because the West is a complex and fascinating place, both geographically and as a state of mind. The Wild West, the frontier, manifest destiny. These mythic ideas propelled American history, defined half a continent, and changed the arc of world history. But a lot of the time, if you look hard at the history of the West, you find that reality is a lot weirder and more complicated than legend and lore would suggest. If you listened to our first season, you know how we roll on Death in the West. In season one, we took a close look at an infamous unsolved killing in Montana's biggest copper mining town. But we also told the bigger story that surrounded that case. Class struggle, industrialization, and how a battle for power in the West reverberated in popular culture. On season two, we're once again going to tell a couple of distinctly Western stories. We'll look into the D.B. Cooper case and the cult of personality that evolved in its wake. We'll also be talking about a second skyjacking, a lesser-known event that happened right around the same time with a much different outcome. Two sides of the same coin, you could say. We're also going deep on the history of the jet age, how air travel transformed the West, and how the sensational crimes of this era fit into the deeper mythology of the American frontier. It's going to be quite a ride. We're doing this special preview episode because we want to mark a special moment, the golden anniversary of D.B. Cooper's hijacking of Northwest Flight 305. That incident, 50 years ago, became the nation's only unsolved airline hijacking. It's a case that's been told and retold many times, yet it remains a mystery. It's a moment we need to understand before we get into our bigger story. Because no matter how many times people zoom in on the details of that flight in 1971, somehow D.B. Cooper remains an elusive figure. Even many of the basic facts of the case remain murky. And to this day, half a century later, People are still trying to figure out who D.B. Cooper was and what happened to him. There's a part of us that responds at a subconscious or an unconscious level when there are unsolved crimes, because that means there's an instability in the matrix. There's an instability in society. There's an unknown. 
Is D.B. Cooper still out there? He's at large. All right, he's 99 years old, but still, he's out there. This is Bruce Smith. He wrote a book called D.B. Cooper and the FBI, which is an important source for this episode. Bruce is just one of many people who have pondered the Cooper case over the years, both its mysteries and its long-lasting cultural appeal. We'll be hearing more from Bruce and other Cooper scholars during the season. For decades, people have scoured the case for clues. They've literally combed the woods and beaches of rural Washington state. There have been innumerable books, TV documentaries, late-night radio shows, rabbit hole Reddit threads, and headline-grabbing moments when someone, somewhere, announces they think they've figured it out. And along the way, folks have devised some very exotic ideas about who Cooper might have been and the truth behind his deeds. Was D.B. Cooper a CIA black ops agent? Was he part of President Richard Nixon's Dirty Tricks team, the political sabotage operation behind Watergate? Just how is it that one of the longest FBI investigations in that agency's history never turned up a solution? People need to invent answers and that type of thing. And as time goes by, I think there's a tendency for these stories to become more outlandish. This is Eric Euless, a leading figure in the study of the Cooper case. He's conducted expeditions into the Washington countryside looking for traces of Cooper. And as we'll hear later in season two, he's proposed one of the major theories regarding Cooper's true identity. But as much as he's studied the case itself, he recognizes that the broader cultural phenomenon of D.B. Cooper is just as interesting. He's been termed as the gentlemanly bandit. Uh, that's a little bit too euphemistic for me. But, but the point of the matter is there is a James Bond-esque quality to the crime. And I think that that's sort of resonated with people back then, and it still resonates today. And at the end of the day, you know, the guy got away with $200,000. It's true. D.B. Cooper vanished into the night. His ransom loot would be worth about $1.2 million in today's money. And he did it with one singular move, one no one had pulled off before, even in an era when planes were being hijacked with ridiculous frequency. He jumped. Hey guys, it's Chad Dundas, Zach's brother and part of the team here at Death in the West. Thanks for checking out our special teaser episode marking the 50th anniversary of the D.B. Cooper hijacking, which we hope will get you hyped up for the start of Season 2 in January. If you haven't listened to Death in the West before, welcome. There's still time to binge Season 1 before Season 2 starts. In that series, we investigated the unsolved murder of union organizer Frank Little in Montana in 1917. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, all the big podcast platforms. And listening to it will give you a good idea of what Death in the West is all about. We also want to encourage you to check out our website, deathinthewestpod.com, where you'll find supplemental material for our episodes and where you can donate to keep the show going. We can't make Death in the West without the support of our listeners, so please consider it. If you're an advertiser who may want to sponsor Season 2, let's talk. Send us an email from the website or direct to tips at deathinthewestpod.com. We do need your help. You can also follow us on Instagram, where our handle is at deathinthewestpod, or on Twitter, at deathwestpod. Thanks so much for listening. Now back to the story. 
We don't know a lot about D.B. Cooper the man, but we can imagine what it would be like if you or I decided to embark on a misadventure like this, one that would get more intense with every step. Imagine being in the shoes, the loafers, of that person aboard Northwest Orient Flight 305. At some point, he decides this is a thing he wants to do. Hijack a plane. Again, we don't know why. It was something that had been in the news a lot back then, but still, it's a pretty extreme idea. Whatever was going on in this person's life, it was serious or deranged enough to make skyjacking sound like the best solution. It must have been something pretty heavy. Before setting out, he builds a bomb, or what is supposed to be a bomb, hidden in an attaché case. In itself, another radical step, but maybe not even a crime. Not yet. He takes that attaché case to the airport. Another big step, toward a red line that once crossed can never be uncrossed. But at that point, he's still in the clear. No one suspects him. He buys a ticket. Maybe he's had his eye on the Portland-Seattle flight for a while. In any case, he seems to have a plan. The plane's boarding door closes. He orders his bourbon and soda. At this point, he can still back out. He can still get off the plane in Seattle like a normal traveler. No one needs to know what's in the attaché case. Then the plane takes off. A flight attendant sits in a jump seat near him. And he makes the big decision. He hands her a note. At first, she doesn't read it. So the man leans toward her and says, Miss, you'd better look at that note. I have a bomb. From that moment, whoever this man is, his destiny changes. That red line? He just crossed it. As we heard, once the plane lands in Seattle, D.B. Cooper gets his parachutes and bag of money and orders the plane back into the air. He says he wants to go to Mexico City. Once airborne, however, he makes another series of very specific demands. He wants the pilot to fly low and slow, no faster than 200 miles per hour, wing flaps at 15 degrees, wheels down and locked, no higher than 10,000 feet. He insists the cabin be unpressurized, and Cooper has another unusual request. The Boeing 727, in service for just about 10 years at that point, had a unique feature, a set of built-in air stairs, also known as aft stairs, that could open from the back of the plane. In theory, this new feature would allow passengers to board or deplane without using those mobile stairs you often see get wheeled out to planes on the tarmac. Cooper is interested in those air stairs. At first, he wants to open them when the plane is still on the ground in Seattle and actually take off with the stairs down. The crew resists Cooper's unusual request, but he assures them it can be done. Military flight crews had been testing this technique in the ongoing Vietnam War, and Cooper seems to know that. A lot of technical detail for a first-time hijacker, right? Once they're in the air, a flight attendant agrees to show Cooper how to deploy the stairs. Northwest Orient Flight 305 is southbound, with plans to stop in Reno for refueling on the Mexico City route the hijacker demanded. 
Where exactly the plane is flying remains disputed to this day. The FBI claims Flight 305 is on a designated flight path called Victor 23. Others, journalists who spoke with the pilot years later, D.B. Cooper sleuths, say the plane is actually flying east of V-23 over the Washougal River. And yet others say west. Out in the darkness, several military planes are shadowing its flight, out of sight. Cooper dons a parachute, according to one flight attendant, with a confidence that suggests he's done it before. Fleeting observations like this, along with his seemingly intimate knowledge of what could be done with the plane's rear air stairs, help fuel the speculation around D.B. Cooper that he's ex-military, for example. On the other hand, some people who analyze the evidence later conclude that the hijacker doesn't carefully inspect the chutes at his disposal, so maybe he doesn't know what he's doing. As you'll hear as we dig deeper into the case this season, there's a surprising amount of ambiguity packed into these few hours of action in 1971. At about 7.45 p.m., just 10 minutes after takeoff, D.B. Cooper orders the final flight attendant to leave him and head for the cockpit. As she draws the curtain behind her, she sees Cooper lashing a parachute cord around the bank bag. They wouldn't be going to Mexico after all. In some accounts, Cooper waves goodbye to her. In any case, this is the last time anyone sees him in the flesh. But here's what we can imagine. D.B. Cooper is alone in the depressurized cabin. For hours now, he has been making one move after another, getting deeper and deeper into this criminal episode of his own devising. And when you think about it, in a way, everything he's done to this point narrowed his options, like a telescope twisting shut, its view narrowing to a pinpoint, making his plan getting to the airport, buying the ticket, giving his note to the flight attendant, showing her the bomb, making his demands. He's been hemming himself in, locking himself into a situation bordered by one of the most confined human spaces, the cabin of a 727, hurtling through the air. But now... After a brief struggle with the aft stairs that involves an intercom call to the crew in the cockpit, Cooper gets them open at about 8.04 p.m. He's created a surprising exit, those air stairs, literally into thin air, a portal into an unknown future. At some point, most likely in the minutes just after 8 o'clock Pacific time, the night before Thanksgiving 1971, the man calling himself Dan Cooper, soon to be known worldwide as D.B. Cooper, descends those stairs. Does he pause at the top, looking down into the yawning black sky? Does he stare out the back of that plane into the freezing wind of a fall storm and think, what the hell am I doing? Does his heart flutter uncontrollably in his chest? Or has he done this a million times before, perhaps in another life, as a military man in Europe or Southeast Asia? Does he have second thoughts? Wish he hadn't gone through with his crazy plan after all. 
Or is he absolutely determined to see this through? Is he still really wearing those loafers? Some say he's changed into jump boots. Just about the only thing we can say for certain is that in some ways, these moments are D.B. Cooper's last as a mortal man. As he lets go of the air stairs railing and leaves that platform, he stops being flesh and blood. He falls into that abyss and he becomes a legend, the hijacker who jumped. At least as far as popular culture is concerned, the life he's led up to that moment, whatever it was, ceases to be. His real name is lost. His face becomes flattened, turned into a two-dimensional black-and-white FBI composite sketch that will probably outlive all of us. Whatever reasons he has for committing this crime likewise disappear into the night sky. In that moment, D.B. Cooper becomes a myth part of the folklore of the West and of the world. His story will inspire books and movies and countless websites. Other people will spend immeasurable hours of their own lives studying his plans, trying to figure out who he had really been, only to come up empty. In the cockpit, the crew thinks they feel him jump. The plane's tail buckles, and the pilot has to correct for it. And yet the exact moment D.B. Cooper leaves the plane remains uncertain. Most accounts say 8.13 p.m. Some say 8.12 or 8.15. Even on a slow-flying plane, one minute makes a difference when it comes to where a man might land after falling from the sky. But when the plane lands in Reno, the man called D.B. Cooper is gone. In just a few hours, he will be known across the country and around the world as the man who jumped. He's the first to do it. But as we'll hear this season on Death in the West, he won't be the last. Death in the West Season 2 will officially kick off on January 4th, 2022. We hope you'll join us then. If you haven't checked out Season 1, it's available on all your favorite podcast platforms. This series is produced by Chad Dundas, Erica Fredrickson, Leif Fredrickson, and me, Zach Dundas, from our secret headquarters in Missoula, Montana, and Portland, Oregon. This is a 100% independent production, and we can only do it with the amazing support of our listeners. If you'd like to help us out, go to our website, deathinthewestpod.com, and click Donate. Unlike D.B. Cooper, we promise that it's all on the up and up. Lacey Roberts is our editorial consultant on season two. Our original music is by Travis Yost. The extra track you're listening to now is by the Missoula band Crypto Collider. Our theme song for season two is adapted from Cookie Cutter Man by the band Butter, also from Missoula, which you might remember from season one. We get audio engineering help from Chris Higgins and Johnny Ashcroft is our go-to graphic designer. Thanks to Eric Eulis and Bruce Smith for their interviews for this episode and the season to come. That archival audio clip, as you may have guessed, was Walter Cronkite on the CBS Evening News. We produce this show in the American West on the traditional lands of many indigenous peoples. Thanks for listening. We'll be back at it in January. Talk to you soon. <laughs>